because I think that of all the classes that we're going to talk, that we're going to have in the Bar Mitzvah series, I think that the one that you're most likely to assume has the least connection to the Bar Mitzvah idea, but in fact has a tremendous connection, is history. In simple words, I think it's, it's an overlooked subject. And I think perhaps the reason why it's overlooked is because people don't know why we're learning it. What's the significance of delving into matters of the past? In fact, matters that are oftentimes, if you look at the Torah, the Torah, the last date in the Torah is more than 3,300 years. Well, not quite. About exactly 3,300 years ago. That's a long time. And it seems dated. But I think that as a, a way of introduction, I think it's a very, very important, it's exceedingly important to learn in and delve into Jewish history because there's very clear patterns that are established. Uh, and if we fail to take the lessons of the failings of history, then we are almost guaranteed to repeat them. Almost guaranteed. And, and it's true, you could, as you give me any century uh, or any time period in Jewish, you know, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish history, and you'll see that it's part of the pattern, part of the global pattern. Now, last year when I did this class, I made a mistake, and I tried to just give all the information in an hour and a half, and it's not possible. No. I remember uh, that you raced. I raced through, through and then yeah. someone asked a question, and I said, "Why are you asking a question?" We can't. We can't have no time for questions. So what I'm going to try to do now, I'm, I'm going to try to give more perspective, more insight, more lessons that are more macro ideas and less into the micro. But we'll also try to get a little bit in, a little bit done. And I have a feeling that we're not going to cover everything today. And we'll have to do a part two, which is which is fine because I think it's going to be yeah. A, yeah. My plan is to make it interesting. So I'd love to have another class during the week of this so that we really you know what this it. is. This is every class, every every segment of this course is important, but to me, this is probably the most important of all. Well, because yeah. we just don't get this. Well, you know, and understanding the chronology of this is it's not very easy. important. There's a lot right to it. And this year as well, if you take a look at your pamphlet, you'll notice that it's not just. Uh, two pages actually well last year we had only one page but the first two pages are basically giving you like a, a timeline throughout Jewish history uh, kind of walks you through the major events uh, and on page number three you'll see a little bit of a picture of what of the history of Torah so to speak and how the Torah uh, was developed or more precisely, how it was codified. means the, the various stages in the history of how the Torah came to be you know, in its current form. And the last part, is if you've gone to enough of my brother's classes, you'll notice that you, you'll, you'll, you'll have seen this before. The last part actually is a tr- tracing the leaders uh, of, the, or not the leaders, or the, the Torah transmission, the history of the Torah and the individuals that are responsible for transmitting it from 3,300 years ago to today. Right, we did that. We had a class on that one. Yes, so this is... And what you'll find find in Jewish history a lot is, is it's very much the history of individuals, much more than forces, you know, Uh, because in Jewish life, it's all about the great individual. It's all about taking... 
you know, a person and perfecting them. We know that through our Musar study, but we also know that, that that's, that's really the focus. The focus is the great people. And uh, because they're oftentimes the microcosm of everyone else. You know, they're the Jew in his, in his, in, in his or her finest uh, iteration. Okay, so that's uh, the introductions. And we start with the statement in the Talmud. The Talmud breaks down Jewish history to three eras. The Talmud says, perhaps you've heard it, perhaps you heard something similar, you don't know exactly where it's placed and that, what the full Talmudic statement is. But the Talmud says as follows, Shis alfen shana have alma. Which language is that in? Who knows? Shis alfen shana have alma. Yiddish. Not in Yiddish, no. It's not, not, it's, it's not in Hebrew. It's, Aramaic it's in Aramaic. Aramaic. Say Farsi, yeah. Aramaic has a word like shis. Shis, yeah. Shis, shis means six, like sheish, very similar to the Hebrew. Yeah. Six thousand years have a alma, the world, like olam is the word, alma is the word in, in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. The world's going to be around for six thousand years. Oh. Yes. So say, do we really yeah. have to believe that? Well, it's a perspective of Jewish history. Okay, that's good. No, no, and remember, when it's talking about Alma, it's talking about from Adam. It's not talking about anything before Adam. Sure. So it's not. We're not necessarily saying that the that the that the that the entire world. I mean, the world of Adam uh, from Adam. That makes sense. I mean, it's from when the Torah starts. We're not talking what happened. You know, what year right now? Okay. No, this this is a moot argument. It's not. It's not. We're not arguing as to whether or not the world. Uh, is 13.8 billion years old. That's irrelevant to our discussion because that's all before Adam. Since Adam, we have documented about 5,000 and change years, and that's the world that we're talking about. Okay. And, and it doesn't mean that after the 6,000 is over, the world ceases to exist. It means this world that we're talking about is a 6,000-year project. Mm-hmm. The first 2,000 years is tohu. Tohu means chaos. The next 2,000 words is Torah, and the final 2,000 years is Mashiach. What's the second two? I didn't know. Tohu, which means chaos. Torah, which means Torah. Mashiach means Mashiach. The idea being is that this world is going to have three phases. There's going to be the first phase of chaos. Chaos means a lack of clarity. A lack of clarity in what? In the goal of the world. What's the goal of the world? Right. What's the, uh, the essence, the reality of the world? God. Right. We know that if you look at your timeline and you look at the, at, at, uh, at, at the first thing on the timeline, we have Abraham is born. What year was Abraham born into the 60,000-year cycle? 1948. Which is an easy number to remember because it's the same year in the Gregorian calendar that we have the state of Israel. So Abraham is all the way at the end of this 2,000-year cycle, and he's the one who brought the transition from Tohu to Torah, from chaos, from lack of knowledge into the idea of God. Uh, He grew up in a pagan world, we know that. Abraham was the one. Abraham is significant in Jewish history because he's the one who, by deduction of his intellectual capabilities, deduced and reasoned that God must exist and God, how the Jewish people define God. Hence, he was the one who ended this uh, era of chaos, and he ushered in the idea of Torah, 
Once you know the idea of God, the next thing is, well, what does God expect of us? That's the Torah. And if you fast forward to the to the fourth the year the point of the four thousand, which is about two thousand years uh, ago, you have Rabbi Judah the Prince who writes down the Mishnah. Writing down the Mishnah was the final phase of writing down. Well, Mishnah and the Talmud was the final phase of writing down the Torah, of codifying, of organizing all of the Torah. No, 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 no. The, that's just the written Torah. That's oh. just one aspect. Oh, okay. The written Torah is to Torah what this document is to our discussion. It's a blueprint. It's a baseboard, <coughs> right? You know, it's it's a reference point. Uh, but the actual Torah is much more than that. The Torah means everything that God demands of us, expects of us, uh, wants to teach us about life. You know. So you said, Rabbi, that that Rabbi Judah the Prince, then. And writing the Mishnah came at the end of the Torah phase? Correct. Okay, got it. means it's, it's the sealing of the Torah, so to speak, the sealing of the Talmud, and then now bringing the world, ushering in Mashiach. Now, what does Mashiach mean? Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Messiah is, is an idea that's very, very uh, uh, ubiquitous in Jewish life, in Jewish thinking, in Jewish liturgy, right? You look at the Jewish prayers, how many times do we reference Mashiach, rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, right? Reinstituting the, the grandeur uh, and the splendor of yesteryear, right? How many times do you talk? All the time. Well, what does Mashiach mean? And what is this culmination? So I think it's important to bring in this other point, which I also think is going to be uh, a, a window into, uh, once again, macro picture of, of, uh, of Jewish history. We're told in the Talmud, Mashiach is going to come in a time that is either entirely righteous or entirely wicked. Mashiach is going to come in a generation that's either entirely righteous or entirely wicked. Now, I'm sorry, I thought it was, you had to have so many years of peace before he would show up. Well, well, um, we're just using what it actually says in the Talmud. Talmud doesn't say a lot, but what it does say is that uh, Messiah is coming in a time of total righteousness or total wickedness. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, is it is it coming uh, what because we earn it because we're totally righteous, or is it coming because we don't earn it? But we're totally wicked. What does that mean? It, what, what's Messiah? Right? Is it a combination of righteousness or wickedness? It seems like it's both or one or the other. So, I think this brings us to maybe the definition of what the Jewish people are. We're told in um, Abraham, in in the books of Genesis, uh, right before the Jews get the Torah, we're told what the Jewish people are. We're told the Jewish people are a distinct nation. Distinct. We're different. We're different. Now, you could be different and distinct in one of two ways. You could either be notorious... You could be, you know, wicked, but also like distinct in your wickedness. That's one way to do it. Or you could be distinct in your righteousness, in your piety. The culmination of this 6,000-year project is going to be because of the Jews. Jews doing what? Jews doing what the Jews are, by definition, are a nation of (coughs) holy people. Holy means distinct. It means different. Now, the Jews are bound to be holy because that's what the Torah says you're going to have to remain holy. 
right? We just had recently uh, in, in, in the Book of Numbers, uh, two weeks ago, we read in the Parsha uh, about Bilam. And Bilam is given a, uh, not a blessing to the Jewish people, and he defines the Jewish people as being a loner nation, right? Loner, not as in a loner car, but loner with, with an O and no A, right? <laughs> We're alone. Right. We're a distinct nation. That is the definition of what it means to be Jewish. And the fact that we're going, to ha- we're, we're going to remain distinct and we're bound to stay like that, right? that, is, uh, the, that is the reason why when Jewish people uh, veer away from being distinct in the good sense, right? They are not morally upstanding. They're not a light to the nations. They're not the, uh, the moral guardians of the world. What happens? We see that they have anti-Semitism. Right? If, you just, if you map out Jewish history, you'll notice that the ups, when the Jewish people are, dis- uh, you know, that's the best of times. Jewish people are distinct because of their holiness. Right? There's no anti-Semitism. When they dip down and they remain down for a significant amount of time, right? they are at risk of assimilating. They are at risk of losing their moniker of being the distinct nation. There's an outbreak of anti-Semitism. Right? What happened to anti-Semitism? Right? We tell the Jews, you're Jewish, you're different, we don't like you. As a crude example, we just had the, most, you know, the, the greatest um, outbreak of, of genocide and uh, hatred and racism. Uh, in history was in Germany. Germany was, over the, past, the hundred years preceding the Holocaust, was a hotbed of Jewish assimilation. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice this. These patterns are very clear in Jewish history, specifically at the locations, mm-hmm. at the locations where the Jewish people were most assimilated, <clears throat> were least distinct. That's where the forces of a nation being wicked, being uh, losing its... Uh, a generation being totally wicked, losing its identity as being a distinct nation, being a loner nation, that's where that erupts and the bad half of the same coin uh, is exposed. So in essence, we say Mashiach is the culmination of the Jewish people being a distinct nation. And therefore, it's going to happen. Our choice is going to be is it going to happen because of us? Because of our righteousness? Because of us actually fulfilling our destiny of being a distinct and a holy nation? Teaching the world about God? Yeah, that's what we hear. Teaching the world about morals? right? Being a, a, a nation that everyone admires? And then it's wonderful. We can have our cake and eat it too. Or we can, we can choose collectively to assimilate, to forget about what it means, what, you know, our special mission in this world. And Mashiach will come then as well. But then it'll come in a very, very different sense, uh, meaning of, of, the world, of the word. It'll come, but it's not going to be pleasant. Either way, the result is the same. And so that's the picture of the 6,000 years. We see that there is a process. There's a beginning. There's a progression. Right? And then there's the end, right? We start off with learning about God, we learn about Torah, and then we learn about the Jewish people. Those, these three elements are, are three facets. That is the progression of, 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 of Jewish history, but really of the entire world's destiny. And also we, 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 we see a little bit how God is going to intervene in history, right? God is going to assure, this is, this is the blueprint. This, you know, this was already written in the Talmud, uh, thousands of years ago, right? This is how it's going to happen. 
Right. Uh, this is the destination. Our choice is what path are we going to use to get there. So what's interesting is, is that we kind of do have a say in the matter, even though we don't have a say in the matter. We can change the uh, destination. The destination is set in stone. Right? We call that Mashiach. It's set in stone. However, the path we choose to be this wonderful nation of, of, of distinct, of different, of teaching the world about God, that's, that's in our hands. We can teach the, teach the world about God because look, look what a model nation is. This is the nation of God. This is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as it says in Exodus. Or we can teach the world about God because the entire world will see our decimated carcass of a nation and they'll say, look what the Almighty did to them. Look what the Almighty did because they, forsa- they had forsaken him. And you know what? You read the Torah, you read the end of, of Leviticus and the middle of Deuteronomy where it talks about the bad things that will happen to Jewish people if they go astray. That's what it describes. And, and the, the exclamation point is always that the nations of the world are going to say, look what God did to, to, to the Jewish people. The result is the same. Right? The world is learning about God. The result is the same. We taught the entire world about God. We fulfilled our mission of being God's people in the world. But it's our choice how we're going to do that. That much is in our hands. <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers. We're told about them in the book of Genesis. We're told that Abraham made a pact with God. More precisely, God made a pact with Abraham. They had an agreement. We were chosen. We're the chosen nation. Now, I think it's important to to mention, why are we the chosen nation? Was it just the Almighty randomly chose Abraham? He could have chosen anyone else? The answer is no. Uh, the more correct understanding is that Abraham chose God. Abraham, via his deduction and his skills and his intelligence and his tenacious dedication to teaching the world about God, Abraham was the one who was chosen because he chose to adopt this way of life. Abraham's ideas were very unpopular in his time. He was a man against everyone. It was him against the world. There were uh, established, ready for thousands of years, uh, perceptions about 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 powers, about 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 uh, uh, you know the the pagan way of life was just the way everyone went, and Abraham had the courage to stand up against that and to develop a philosophy which he disseminated to tens of thousands of people. He had a tremendous following to teach the world about God. This was the first time that any human had, had endeavored on such an effort. Therefore, God was waiting for, for, this, for this person. Once God found them, then God, then God says, I'm going to make a pact with you because you chose me. Now, Abraham developed this wonderful following. What happened to, those, what happened to that movement? Where are all those Abraham's converts, so to speak? You know where they are? They're gone. Because we'll, one, the, uh, one thing we'll find many, many, many times in Jewish history is that great ideas, great movements, great efforts almost always stumble uh, from the get-go. Right? You don't hit immediate success right away. We had the, the temple, right? The first temple was amazing. Right? It was a manifestation of God's presence in this world. 
what happened? It got destroyed. We did round two. What happened to that? It got destroyed as well. It's efforts. It's trying to bring towards a certain goal. It always stumbles uh, at the beginning. Abraham had had two sons. He had a son, Ishmael, and a son, Isaac. Once again, we see that Abraham's effort of teaching the world about God extended not only to the Jewish people, which is the direct continuation of Abraham, but also to Islam. And uh, Isaac had a son, Esau. Esau was the forefather of Rome, of Edom, of Rome, and Christianity. So in essence, Abraham is called Abraham, uh, the Talmud, the, 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 not the Talmud, the Torah says, why is he called Abraham? Av Hamon Goim. He's the father of many nations. Abraham uh, and his ideas, while in their most perfect sense, are, are, are perpetuated by the Jewish people, but he also has a hand in, in the general dissemination of uh, monotheism uh, throughout the whole world. So why are the Muslims Well, I would argue that, that um, the Muslims are much closer to what we believe than, than what the Christians are. Uh, but yes, you know, this, is, this is just this, this is life. Life is that it's not always going to be perfect. Uh, and we view Maimonides' rights. He says, yes, in the best, best case scenario, the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone would be the ones that would teach the world about, about God. But we didn't do our job well enough. And therefore, the Almighty brought uh, our kind of cousins, so to speak, right? The Christians and the Muslims to do a job, albeit not quite as good a job, uh, but to, to help us in our effort to teach the world about, uh, about God. We're the primary influencers, but yes, we're going to have some help along the way. From who? From the sense of Abraham as well. Uh, we have Isaac. Uh, we have Jacob. Jacob, all his kids are uh, all his kids are uh, on the straight and narrow. Right? Isaac, uh, Abraham has his troubles with Ishmael. Isaac has his troubles with Esau. Right? First time it didn't really work perfectly. Second time it didn't really work perfectly. Third time was perfect. Right? We see that again. Similarly, the same pattern again and again. Oh, well, it means uh, Jacob being the perfect blend. All his 12 children are the 12 tribes of the Jewish people. Jacob is renamed Israel. Right. Right, because that's really when the nationhood of exclusive Jewish people began. Jacob... Wait, am I missing something? Is Joseph Jacob's son? Or were correct. Some folks in between? Uh, J- Jacob had 12 sons. sons. The perfect Sold him into slavery? Uh, yes. Well, Jacob had Jacob had twelve sons, and we're told many times that all twelve sons were equally righteous, and these twelve sons formed the twelve tribes that the Jewish people were. Uh, sold one of them into. Slavery. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that, they, that's part of the story. Yes. Well, I understand. I'm just the perfect part. Um, no, per- perfect on. as 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 being the perfect uh, <clears throat> a, a a Jewish reality. So per- what, what that's a better way to say. It. That makes sense. Outside of the twelve brothers, all there was cousins and all kinds of stuff. They just fall into the different tribes, like Mill. Well, all all biological Jews, at least Jews from the time of 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 the Exodus, they were all part of the tribes, right? Okay. Already, you know, we 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 uh, 
we envision the splitting of the sea, and it's very important for us to have some sort of imagery in our head for it, but we split, we imagine the sea splitting like that, right? If you actually study a little bit of the text, you'll find that it actually split into 12. Right? Each Tribe Each had tribe had their own had their own path, and you know is what? That right? That's right. Yes. Yeah, I never knew that. Well, you learn you learn something new every all day, the right? Time. That's why. That's right. That's why I'm in all these classes. Okay, like I do remember in the movie they line up in their tribe. And we yeah. know that this this the, I'm saying that the 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 the, um, uh, the reality where the Jewish people you know had some sort of tribal um, structure that. Existed for hundreds of years down the line, right? You know, when, you know why is it called Judea and Samaria, the, the West Bank? Because that's the, where the tribe of Judah lived. The tribe, but Israel, was partitioned into twelve uh, sections, right. one mm-hmm. for each one of the right. tribes. Mm-hmm. And the tribes lived together. What about Israel was a country separate from Judea? No, well, the, we'll get to that. But bef- before there was a uh, before before it split, oh, okay. right? That split only four hundred years after they captured Israel. Yeah. But during. During the time when they're they, when we're slaves, we weren't grouped into tribes at that time. Well, it was, it was families, you know. They, Family. they, you know, they were All part, right. you know, but families coming from a, a similar ancestor. Right. Know? Okay. Jacob is the one who is really Israel. He's called Israel because he's the Jewish people. And uh, now Jacob, we know, was told, you know, that he had to develop certain skills. And this is once again we see, and we're told. That mase avot siman labanim. The actions of our forefathers are a a a or a light or a guidance to to the their descendants. Right. The challenges that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had to undergo are the same challenges that we will go through again and again. Right? Uh, Jacob was someone who had to learn, who had to develop certain skills that weren't natural. He was a very honest person, but he had to learn to be wily enough, cunning enough to deal with his father-in-law, uh, Lavan. Yeah. Right? He was not one who was prone to battle, but he had to prepare himself for battle for the struggle with Esau. And this is the struggles that we collectively as a nation will have to develop. We're going to go into Israel. We're going to have to develop laws. What do the Jews know about laws? Right? What do Jews know about enforcement of laws? Right? We're going to have to mature as a nation in the same way Jacob, our forefather, had to mature from Jacob into Israel. Um, what happens? Jacob's uh, bliss as having 12 sons, they're all in the straight and narrow, they're all well-behaved, is quite uh, short-lived. And this is another pattern you'll see in history where the times where there's struggle greatly outnumber the time where you know, themes are really, really good. Right? He has Joseph sold into slavery, Eventually, the entire Jewish people or entire the Jewish family, as it was then, uh, end up in Egypt. And before you know it, they're enslaved. They're enslaved. They're in exile. Now, if you flash forward uh, a couple of uh, hundred years, you'll find that they end up in different exiles. There's the Babylonian exile, where they're kicked out of Israel. There's the Persian exile, where, the, where their very existence is threatened. There's the what's called the Greek exile, right, where the Hanukkah story is, where they had internal turmoil. There's the Roman exile, the temples destroyed, the Jews are sent out. Right? Jews live under Babylonian control, right, the, 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 the Byzantine control. They live under the Ottoman Turks. They, they you know, they deal with Alomahads in Spain and, and North Africa, right. They have to go through the pogroms, right, throughout Europe. They, they, they deal with the exile and the expulsion, the Inquisition, 
and the Holocaust, and so many of these themes in different nations. Once again, this is a clear pattern. Everyone knows there's the wandering Jew. There's the Jew who ends up everywhere. We've lived everywhere. We've been persecuted everywhere. We've been, we, you know, our existence has been threatened in every place we've lived. And that starts with, with, with Egypt. And um, one of the answers, this is not the only answer, but one of the explanations given as to why does our nation specifically, our nation, the nation, the nation that was chosen or that chose this uh, path, this responsibility to teach the world about God, why are we the ones who specifically have to constantly be going from place to place under oppression, under oppressive regimes, and, and you know have to uh, withstand so much? Many answers given. One of the answers, I think, uh, is that every nation has the things that are remarkable about it, about its character, about its way of, of living, about its way of treating the citizens, about its way of interacting. It has the things that are you know, the less admirable. You know, we are not only supposed to be the chosen or the chosed or the one that nation that chose, we're all supposed to be the most remarkable nation. We're supposed to be a nation that is the culmination of all the benefits of every nation. We're supposed to be the super nation. Now, how are you going to become a super nation when you live in your own cocoon? The answer is, is that we're going to have to spend a few hundred years in Egypt. A few hundred years under the Romans, a few hundred years with the Greeks, a few hundred years with the uh, you know in Spain, a few hundred years in uh, Poland, Lithuania, Germany, a few hundred years. Well, not so many hundred years, but you know, in 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 England and France, and uh, you know, and and collectively, we're going to uh, assemble all the qualities of all the different nations and bring them all together back to Israel. America has wonderful character traits. Wonderful. Right, but that falls in as the learning and everything of here. But here we have all the assimilation. Well, that. but but that but that's not a uh, isolated incident, an isolated fact in Jewish history. And you know what? If we don't shape up, we're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. pay for it quite dearly. Is it true, Rabbi, that jo- Jacob knew the whole, everything that was going to happen in the world, but took it to his death with him? Well, 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 like this. Okay, so the definition of a prophet is, uh, the Jewish definition of a prophet is someone who, uh, through his stages, his or her stages of their growth, of their progression in their character development, in their scholarship, right? They, one of the levels is called, uh, it's called prophecy, which means they're able to communicate with God or God communicate with them. Uh, and God girls to tell them what's going to be in the future. So we have the prophet Jeremiah, who's writing about things that didn't happen for a few years. He foretells, right? Uh, on the banks of uh, Al Naharot Bavel, we sat in the rivers of, ba- of Bavel, and they and we were crying, and we were just exiled. Right? We were in Israel now for hundreds of years, and we're exiles to, uh, to, to Babylonia. And they asked us to sing, and they say, "How do we sing? How do we sing God's song on a foreign soil?" Jeremiah wrote that hundreds of years before it happened. Yes, you know. So, so the reality of someone knowing information before it happened, you know, that uh, a prophet can do. That being said, a prophet is not necessarily told. Uh, you know, they're on a need-to-know basis. Uh, now, that being said, we're told in the Talmud that Jacob wanted to tell the Jewish people the kates. What does kates mean? 
Kates means the end or the goal or the ultimate of culmination. Now, does that mean that he knew every event? No. It means that there's some thing, some insight that he wanted to share and he wasn't able to share it. What that, what that is? I don't know. Yeah? A couple of weeks ago, the teacher we had in computer Yeah, so this right. so let's, let's, let me explain this. Moses, what's the Tal- what the Talmud calls this actually, I think, is a Greek word. Moses had a prophecy by the level of, of aspaklaria meira, which means that Moses was able to communicate to God not uh, with direct uh, instructions, as opposed to all the other um, all the other uh, uh, all the other prophets in you know Jewish history weren't given directives, instructions, word like do X, Y, or Z. Um, rather, they were given imagery. Right? They had some sort of vision, and they had to interpret. And right, and they were all sleeping. Right, Moses yeah. was able to communicate to God, but he had clear instructions. So that's why Moses, um, his prophecy was on a different uh, realm than other others' prophecy. But the the last prophets are uh, are all much later, like Malachi and Haggai, all the way, uh, you know, nine hundred years after Moses. Now, why are we now a non-profit organization? Uh, the reason, there's a reason. Yeah, the reason is, is that, we, like we said, prophecy is not something that you get overnight. Right? If in, in Jewish life, you know, if Joseph Smith comes to the Jewish court and says, I'm a prophet, you know what they do? They don't say, oh, let's hear what you have to say. They execute him right away because that's a false prophet. A prophet is someone who has reached the level of prophecy. It's a certain stage of your growth. It's a stage that's way beyond our capacity to even conceptualize. But it's a certain stage of your growth. Right? A great, 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 great person like Moses isn't going to get prophecy. It's not like the luck of the draw. It's not like you just a lottery. There's some lottery. You could just win the prophecy lottery. It doesn't work like that. Right? It, it's a certain stage of your growth. That being said, as uh, we view um, with regards to Torah and piety, and character and behavior, we view the time since the since the since Sinai as regression. So, therefore, the closer you are to the Sinai experience, the easier it is for you to reach those high levels of character. So, therefore, we could say that the the, the levels of character and scholarship and wisdom and insight that Maimonides reached in the 13th century is something that we cannot, or actually 12th century. It's beyond the capacity of anyone today to reach that. Why? Because he was, you know, eight, eight nine hundred years closer to Sinai than we were. Similarly, the levels of, of scholarship and character reached by the members of the of the of, of the Mishnah who wrote the Mishnah is also beyond even Maimonides' level, etc., etc. Therefore, there was came a point in time where where people lost um, they lost the capacity to reach prophecy. That level of greatness was already beyond the, the reach. Of people in that generation. You know what? As a PS, I think that we're going to torch on do classes on on prophets because I don't know anything about anything. Read the books. Well, I happen to know. 
But it would be yeah, but it'd be nice to read it and then get your insight, you know? Yeah. Yes. Okay. okay, so let's uh, let's move. On. We're only up to like the um, the fourth item here, but uh, I think we 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 talked a little bit about the the core ideas that I wanted to talk. So we can now zip zip through here. So we have the um, Jewish people are enslaved. Moses is born. We have the Exodus. We have the Exodus. We have the splitting of the sea. We have the ten plagues. We have the Jewish people. Um, you know, are you know getting food coming from heaven, right? They're living a supernatural existence. They have the most momentous and significant event in history, the revelation at Sinai, an event unparalleled in human history, right? An event that has not even been replicated in claim. No one even claimed to have an event of such magnitude. Why did no one claim to ever have such an event in such, uh, of such magnitude? I apologize. How come no nation ever claimed that God spoke to multitudes of people Every nation and all 40 or 50,000 of them that exist today, all of them share a similar narrative. God speaks to a single prophet. We're the only one that says our nation was founded on a, on a, in a total, totally different... Uh, uh, the, the structure of the development of our, of, our, of our religion is totally different. We have God speaking to the multitudes. We have not, God speaking not just to Moses. God spoke to every Everyone saw. Read, the, read, the, read Exodus. It says it clearly. Everyone saw it. Therefore, we know for sure that this event is a historical reality. It's incontrovertible. Why is it incontrovertible? Because it's not possible to convince millions of people that they saw something that they didn't see. Everyone saw this wonderful event of prophecy at Sinai. And these people were the same people that got the book. These were the same people that were hand-delivered the book. It wasn't like they got the book hundreds of years later. The same people who experienced the Sinai experience received the book from Moses that says they experienced the Sinai experience. Each one got a copy? Well, each one got a copy. The point is is that the, the, well, Moses actually wrote 13 copies. So... Um, but but that was Moses himself. Other people, other people, other people copied copied them as well. The point being is that we have here a uh, formation of a religion where God is just interacting and uh, intervening and supervising in a supernatural way. They have a forty year period where um, with the Exodus and there's 40 years in the desert. What mm-hmm. happens in 40 years in the desert? Where do they drink water from? Where they had to stay by the oasis? The Torah says that Moses came and took a stick and hit a rock and their water come, came shooting out. They just drank from the water for 40 years. Right? This is a historical reality. It's beyond our perception. How is that possible? But we know it's, it's for sure true. Why? Because the Jewish people tenaciously observed the Torah and had the same book and taught, the, taught that to their children even though they uh, received it uh, or the, the original people that received they received it from Moses themselves. And they were the ones, they were the subjects of that narrative. And they uh, obviously would not uh, fulfill the Torah if they knew it was a bunch of baloney. And the Torah says, what happened then? And this was, it's true. There's no other way around it. They had food coming from heaven. They had, uh, it just rained every night. You woke up in the morning, you went outside, and you have, you have food. And the more righteous you are, the closer the food was to your tent. So if you were super righteous, it arrived in your door. If not, you had to walk a mile to get it. But it was there. And they got, well, you thirsty? Just go to the rock. The rock is just spewing out water. Right. What about clothing? The Torah said. The Torah says the clothing grew with them. 
What about mountains? How'd they all climb the mountains? Well, they had they were surrounded by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke during the day, and the smoke leveled the mountains. Like this is a supernatural existence. They have Moses. Moses is in direct communication with God. Moses teaches them Torah. This 40 years, well, starting with the Exodus, the wonderful events of the Exodus, and these 40 years really are years that uh, are unparalleled, you know, even in Jewish history, because as the formation of the nation, it's very important for them to know, to feel intimately, to know on a tangible level that God exists. Therefore, God's evolved like you can't deny God when food comes falling from heaven, raining down from heaven. You can't deny God when you see a, a, a rock spewing water to feed millions, to, to, to give water to, to drink for millions. When Moses is able to predict events before they happened, when you're able to vanquish mighty armies with you know with a bunch of of, of uh, recently uh, recently uh, emancipated yeah. slaves, no one could deny God, and because the the mission of the Jewish people is too crucial for there to be any mistakes. Everyone on an individual level it does not equal to the Jewish people as a nation. This is the world's mission. The world's mission is us. And if not for us, if we screw up, if, we don't, if we're not cemented in our faith, in our belief, in our dedication to our craft, then the world's gonna, it's not going to happen. Right? It has to happen. Therefore, the Almighty says, there's be 40 years you're going to be wandering through the desert. For one day, you can't stop relying on God. For one day, you can't. Because you know what? If, if God stops, you're fried to the desert. What are you going to do? You have, a, you have a million people encamped in the desert. What are you going to do? Little kids. What do you do if you don't have God? What do you do if you don't have faith? You're toast. Literally. Right? You're toast. Right? It's trying to teach the Jewish people. Right? It's to try to Train them in, in you know to, to make it safe second nature to, to believe in God. What happens at the end of forty years? They're on the doorstep of, 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 of going into Israel. Moses dies. Moses dies. He dies before they go. They never go, he never goes into Israel. We know that he doesn't go, but I thought he stood there and watched everybody go and then No, 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 no. He no, just no. got to see the land from the mountain. Right. That's he, it. Moses dies. What's the next thing that happens <clears throat> after Moses dies in the Torah? The Torah ends. We're we're told by that. I think that we could deduce from that is that. Oh, because then he wasn't talking to God to get any more stories. Well, yeah, but the you know I guess maybe Joshua could have continued the Torah. We're told that the Torah is a book of instructions. The word Torah means instruction. Instructions for what? Instructions for whom? Instructions for us. Instructions for the Jewish people. As an individual, as a collective nation. As an individual, become the best person you could possibly become. Become a perfect person. As a nation, become a perfect nation. What's the ultimate embodiment, the ultimate manifestation? Who is the personification of this reality? Moses. The Torah is really a book about Moses. Right? Because Moses is a manifestation of what the Jewish people ought to be in their best, you know, in their best and what we have to strive for. Maimonides tells us, Every person could be like Moses. Every person could be like Moses. But wait a minute, Rabbi, you just said that we can't be a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Right? That's a good question. The answer is that yes, while we cannot be a prophet, right, our uh, a spectrum of greatness is limited. Right? Our 
prospect, our potential for greatness is much, much more curtailed than Moses was, still we can maximize our potential. Moses was granted with an incredible potential. His prospect rays were incredible, and he maximized and utilized every little bit of it. We could do the same. We're given a tiny little uh, microscopic spectrum of greatness. So what you're saying? But is- our job is to be like Moses. We gotta utilize it, and we have to become as great as we can possibly become. So are you? You're saying that Moses was the manifestation of what the Jews should asp- Jews should aspire to be, right? Absolutely. Basically, like, like, yeah, I want to make sure to make him like an idol to uh, worship him, but yet we are. No, we're, we're, we, we're, we're, we're admiring him. We're using him as an example. We're using him as an inspiration. We're using him as a teacher. There has never been a claim that Moses was a god. Yeah. There's never been a right. claim, and there never right. was a claim. The right. Jewish people were intimately aware of his faults. We knew it. God, it, it, God criticizes Moses more than any other person in the Torah. Hmm. Right. Moses is very much a human. Yet he's a human who has prophecy. Not, and what kind of prophecy? The highest level of prophecy. He's a human whose soul didn't want to leave his body. His soul said that there's no place, no place I'd rather be than in Moses' body. Right? While other souls were told, the souls cannot stand being human bodies. The, the Midrash says that, this, that, that this, this body and the soul are like the two opposite ends of a magnet. They repel each other. Moses' soul found quite harmony in, 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 his, in his body. So yes, he is someone we admire, even though we know that the God tells him you don't you don't faith. Moses, you don't have faith, you get punished. Right? We're aware of Moses being a human, yet we aspire to be like him. So Moses dies, the Torah ends, the instructions end, the mitzvahs end. There are no more mitzvahs, right? The Torah, uh, all 613 mitzvahs aren't contained in the Torah. The rest of the Jewish Bible, what's the purpose of that? Why do we have 24 books of the Jewish Bible? What's wrong with just the five books of Moses? The answer is that the five books of Moses are the laws. And that's what we need, that's what we, 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 we would suffice with that for laws. The book of Joshua is to teach us about which uh, which uh, the division of the land of Israel, which they, which tribe gets which section of, of, of Israel. And if the Jewish people were morally upright, if the Jewish people never sinned, that's all we would need. We need the five books of Moses and the first book of Joshua just to know where the Jewish people, where the division of, uh, of the land uh, is. However, because we sinned and because we made mistakes, because we erred and we strayed away from the golden path, therefore we were punished. And therefore, uh, the leaders of each generation took it as a uh, responsibility to teach the Jewish people what happens when you screw up. Therefore, we have the book of Judges, and the book of Judges, and we have the book of Kings, and the book of Samuel, and we have all these books because there are, they are, they, we, we, there are lessons that we can take. Lessons. But it's very important to note that the instructions, the mitzvahs, only come from the five books of Moses. That's it. Everything else is not, is, is, it could be rabbinic. Well, we could talk about that maybe. It could be rabbinic law, but it's not, it's not, it's not Torah law. All 613 are contained in the Torah. How are we doing? Okay, one question. Question, so shoot. The five book of Moses, then the book of Joshua would make six, and Samuel and Kings and Judges, those are other books. 
Well, or yeah. Are they in the five books? No, no, there's five books of Moses, right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the, That's the Torah. If you look to page three, you'll see uh, on the top of the pyramid, you'll see the Torah, the five books. There's the book, the prophets, which is eight books, and the writings, which is uh, which is eleven books. And the writings are think of like Ecclesiastes and the Book of Esther, the Book of Ruth, the Book of Lamentations, and the Book of Proverbs, the Book of Tehillim, Psalms, right, etc. Prophets Song think of, of songs. Right, Song of Songs, very good. Uh, prophets think of Samuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. The Book of Kings, the Book of Judges, the Book of uh, Joshua. Those are the, the prophets and uh, and the writings. And these are holy books. They're part of the Jewish Bible. They were canonized. I don't get the whole canonization period the process. But these are the books that were canonized. These are these are um, the special laws about these books. But the Torah is above all. The Torah has uh, a much. Uh, it's a difference. That's not. It's not. We can't say that these are twenty four books that have that they have equal status. I just want to make one comment. Yes. I know that this is something that's second nature to you, but I don't know about the other guys. But, you know, my son Joshua is Orthodox. And whenever I've gone with him or I've gone into anybody's home, it just blows me away that everybody has a, a bookshelf or shelves filled with all these books. It's so... Well, we are, we are, we are a nation of, that has always valued the scholar. We're a nation that we never had, uh, we never had illiteracy. We never had a literacy. At a time when Europe was 99% illiterate, we had 100% literacy rates. 100%. We always value the scholar because, you know why? Because the Torah is our lifeblood. We're here with Jewish people. We have a mission. If we don't fulfill the mission, we're dead. We're done. We have to. It has to happen. It cannot happen unless we're intimately engaged with the Torah. Yes. Okay. Now, I want to... Um, I give a little bit of a picture of, of, of what the Jewish leadership uh, or Jewish authority, like well, what happens? Okay, Moses was the leader. You had a problem, you had a question, you had a misunderstanding, you had a doubt, you go to Moses. Moses in the book of Numbers establishes what's called a Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a Jewish Supreme Court. Right, Supreme Court. So at uh, from the time of Moses, 900 years you have a duality where there's always a Sanhedrin, centralized Jewish leadership, and there's also always prophets. And these prophets and this, obviously, Sanhedrin, which continued up to the Common Era, to the second century of the Common Era, these things mitigated, lessened, um, attenuated all problems. So you had, a, you had a problem, you had a disagreement, you go to the prophet. You have a halachic uh, uncertainty, you either go to the prophet or you go to the Sanhedrin, right? We talk about transmission of Torah, and how did they how did they maintain it? And how was it transmitted? Besides the fact that the Jewish people were always dedicated to study, and study was 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 was, was vital. Like it was, you know, Maimonides says you cannot live in a city that doesn't have a Jewish school. You can't. You're not allowed to live there. Well, the, well, the the, the Sanhedrin is a kind of basin. Basin just means a court of Jewish law that could be uh, comprised of as little as three justices. Sanhedrin had seventy-one. Oh, okay. Seventy plus Moses is seventy-one, and they would uh, they would uh, any time there was an argument, two rabbis in the city had a disagreement about a Jewish law. They brought the, they brought it to Sanhedrin or to the prophet, and that's why uh, we're able to go for hundreds of years without without any arguments. 
There's no there's no arguments. There's no disagreements. There's no discrepancies in 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 in, in behavior. So you say it was 900 years. Is that what you well, nine. Well, it went, it went about 1100 years. 1100 years. 11, 1200 years. So Before when did we, we become Jewish. <laughs> we were Jewish. We had we had arguments about uh, uh, political arguments. We had arguments about uh, you know more of uh, philosophical arguments. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have uh, behavioral arguments. Like, what does it mean to be a Jew? What are we supposed to do? Like, what does Shabbos look like? What does uh, what does the temple look like? What, what, you know, what does it mean to to pray? All these things were you know are they're part of the law. You know, there was the law. And the law was clear. And we needed seventy judges. Why? Well, but that's you saying seventy as opposed to less. Well, that was the that was what was established. We read it a few weeks ago in the, in the parsha. It was established already by Moses as being central Jewish leadership, and the reason why it's 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 the importance of central Jewish leadership cannot be understated because um, if you if you look at what happened when the Jewish people lost their central leadership, then they ran into the risk of forgetting the Torah. Because the second you don't have that uh, that fit, you know that fail safe where you could always go back to the Sanhedrin if you have any questions, well then everyone's on their own. What happens when you're like, like yeah, you're on your own, yeah. and at that time that's when they made a decision to give everyone a book called the Mishnah and the Talmud. You're on your own, but this is like a portable Sanhedrin. And we have today. You walk into everyone's house, what they really have is a portable Sanhedrin. Because that was a codification. That was a collaboration. That was all the members of the Sanhedrin, plus a thousand rabbis, came together and says, we have to write the definitive book. The book of all books to answer all questions that will potentially arise in future generations. Because there has to always be some central uh, central uh, um, uh, safety net for the Jewish people that they shouldn't forget their Torah. So if it, if it's if it's not Moses, it has to be the Sanhedrin. If it's not the Sanhedrin, it has to be the uh, the prophets. The second the prophets end, the Sanhedrin takes a much heightened role. Uh, that's what we're introduced to uh, to Ezra and the and the the men of the Great Assembly. We expanded temporarily expanded the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is about to be disbanded. They have to write down the Mishnah. There's no other way. That there's no other way. So that's the writing of the oral law. Correct, <laughs> correct. Which we view as like a kind of a, a sort of a mobile. Uh, a mobile uh, Sanhedrin. It's important to note that it's it's prohibited to write down the oral law. It's a prohibition of the Torah. It has why? Because it's much better when it's fluid. Right? It's much better when it's dynamic. The second you uh, relegate something to being written, then it, it loses its uh, the the um, it loses its its ability to be malleable, to be flexible. Right? It becomes set in stone. Uh, so that's why uh, that's why it was never codified into writing until it had to be, or else the Jewish people would cease to exist. Okay, so that's a little bit of a picture of what Jewish leadership was after Moses. Now, they lived for forty years with Moses under this uh, supernatural way of existing. Right, the food was taken care of, the clothing was taken care of, everything was taken care of for them. They just were able to study Torah. God was involved with them in their lives. Moses dies. They're about to enter Israel, and in Israel they're going to have to deal with life almost the way we deal with life. Yeah. Then have to go into battle. Then have to develop a political uh, system, a court system. Then have to deal with the realities of people bickering and fighting over over property. Right? Everyone's going to have to find jobs. Everyone's going to have to work for a living. They're going to have to take what they learned and integrate that into a more. Uh, it's, it's more of a traditional. Uh, life and way, way of living. And we'll see this was something that they, you know, had a hard time doing. 
and Joshua was viewed as the direct continuation of Moses. Right? Way before Moses died, right, God tells him Joshua is his successor. And he took Joshua with him wherever he went. And everyone knew that Moses, the greatest man that ever lived, the man that spoke to God face to face, he chose him and the Almighty chose Joshua as his successor. So Joshua's leadership was never challenged. Joshua was viewed as a continuation of Moses. Right? Talmud tells that Moses' Moses's face was like the sun, Joshua's was like the moon. Right? That he was a reflection of, 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 uh, of, of Moses. And you know what? If you look in the sky and you try to measure from our perspective the actual size of the sun, yes, the sun is 27,000 times the size of the moon, but for us, they're identical in the size. Yeah. Yes, Moses was much greater than, than Joshua. But for us, for the Jewish people, they look the same. Right? They, you know, yes, it's not quite as bright, but it's the same thing. Right? Joshua dies. And this ushers in a 300 and some odd year period of tremendous turmoil. If you want to know a little bit more about it, I advise you to read the Book of Judges. <laughs> and the Book of Judges, this is where we meet... He didn't have a successor that... <clears throat> uh-huh. He did not have a successor? Well, we have, we have 16 judges. We have, you're familiar with, with, uh, with uh, Devorah. She was the female judge. We had a female judge as well. We were way ahead of the curve with having uh, female leadership. Uh, Gideon and Samson. Huh? Why did we retreat? From that? Who says we did? There's always been great Jewish leaders. Huh? Women Jewish, great women Orthodox rabbis. Well, the the, the moniker rabbi was never wasn't given, but uh, anyway. Yeah, but but the point is is that good point. No, it's a good point. But 3,200 years ago, the leader of Jewish people was a woman. You know, and she was the undisputed leader, and the men came to her for. You know, the, the point is, we were ahead of the curve, and you know. Yes, yeah, certainly at that time there were no women ever allowed to do anything. Yeah, women allowed weren't allowed to allowed to vote till nineteen twenty one, right? right? So, right. well, we're way ahead of the, we're way ahead of it. Yes. Anyhow, um, we have sixteen judges, and now the the time of the judges was marked by tremendous chaos, turmoil, infighting, fighting with the nations, right? The, uh, the, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, was populated by 31 different tribes or kingdoms. We had to battle with each one of them. We were constantly skirmishing with the Philistines. We were skirmishing with the Midianites. Uh, we didn't capture Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last of the 31 kingdoms that we captured. We didn't capture the times of David. We had uh, the ark. We didn't have the temple yet. The ark and the tabernacle; those were in the la- in, the, in, in Shiloh. Right? We had like a temporary holding place for. The, it wasn't a full temple. It was just the uh, core of the temple, which is the ark and the, and, and the tabernacle. And we didn't have Jewish kings. And if you look at the book of Judges and the last verse. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. It was chaos. Scripture and chaos. Along came a man who changed it all. A man that the Talmud tells us is equal to Moses and Aaron in certain respects. Who is that? The great prophet Samuel. The great prophet Samuel was the last of the 16 judges. And he was the one who anointed the very first king. Yes. He was one who anointed the very first king. Who did he anoint? King Saul. 
And King Saul was the leader of leaders, was the quintessential king, was the mighty warrior, was the tallest of men, was the smartest of men, was the greatest scholar. And he anoints, he anoints uh, Saul. And how does he anoint Saul? Saul came to him and says, I'm missing my donkey. Because well, that's what you do when you had a prophet. Remember, the Jewish people still had prophets. He comes and says, give me my donkey. He's like, oh, actually, uh, your donkey's over here, but you're also, you're also king. Because he poured oil on his head. And so they used to be anointed. Like the term Mashiach means anointed. Right? Saul's called Mashiach because he was anointed. He used to pour oil. That was the method of coronation of, 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 of a king. And this is another great example of how great leaders sometimes falter. Right? Saul, if you, if you had to make a prototype for a king, it would look like Saul. Tall, handsome, the greatest scholar, the greatest warrior. The complete package. What happened? He screwed up royally. Right? He had only a two-year reign, and his kingdom would had to be forcibly removed from him, and it was given to David. Who was David? David was an afterthought. He was the youngest kid in his family. He was a gingy. I once said, you know, we did him like this. He was a gingy. He was with, he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't strong. He was, he was feeble, you know. He was a nebbish. <laughs> and what, what, what we'll find a lot, a lot of times is that sometimes, uh, you know, a king or a great leader has to be a man of the people. Has to be someone who knows what people are going through. How did he screw up Saul? Well, Saul was given instructions to destroy the, to Agag and um, destroy Amalek. And he made a decision to spare the king, his name was Agag, and some animals, even though Samuel told him, uh, Samuel told to kill everything, even the animals. Mm -hmm. And then even though Saul was still practicing as the king, but Samuel tells him, God doesn't view you as the king. God views David as the king. So then he goes on a... And then David's kingdom began with his infighting with Saul. You know, so Saul was going after him, and Saul was chasing him in the caves, and etc., etc. You know, uh, he became jealous of him. Exactly. Saul, Saul tried to kill him, and Saul tells him, don't get me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. No, that's right. Yeah. So he goes and gets him 200. And he says, you know, so then he was married to his daughter. It was, it was a disaster. You read the book of, uh, of Samuel. It talks about it, right? It said, you know, book of Samuel, book of Kings, talk about, uh, about uh, David, David, David and Solomon and Shlomo. Uh, but the point is, is that David is viewed as the quintessential king. You know, subsequently... From the times of David, every king had to come, had to be a descendant of the Davidic line. Right? He is royalty in the Jewish people. Right? Mashiach is called Mashiach ben David, the son, the, the, son, the son of David. All kings now come from, from David. And David, and subsequently Solomon, his son Solomon, they mark the utopia. The Jewish people and the monarchy being fully established. That was a time where they fully captured all of Israel. He bought Jerusalem, but he didn't quite build the temple yet. Solomon built the temple, Solomon built the temple, but it was years of prosperity. It was years of 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 harmony. It was years where there was not so much infighting. It was years when the Jewish people had dedications, uh, dedicated dedication towards this new newly built temple. 
They had the temple. They had the great king. They had the wonderful future that would look so bright and look like it would never end. But it did. And it went, uh, and after David ruled for 70 years, for 40 years, from the, from the age of 30 to the age of 70 when he died, his son Solomon was 12 years old when he became king subsequently. He, like David, ruled for 40 years. And then he died. And when he died is when we have the major schism that changed the trajectory of Jewish history. So his son Solomon takes over. His son takes over. He builds the temple. It's, 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 it's amazing. And those years, those years, the 40 of, of David and the 40 of Solomon mark the peak of the Jewish monarchy. After Solomon dies, after Solomon dies, there's a little bit of a of a, of a disagreement amongst the uh, amongst uh, his his son who was Rechavam. His, his son Rechavam uh, was uh, his successor. He made several blunders at the beginning of his of his reign. He received poor counsel. He decided to be punitive in his taxation. He decided to listen to the advice of the young whippersnappers over the advice of the more sage uh, elderly uh, uh, advisors. And therefore there was a schism. There was a break. There was a uh, the northern kingdom seceded. And from then on, for the next hundred and some odd years, you had a divided Israel. So a, a, a tremendous peak of 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 Solomon is quickly, quickly uh, uh, eliminated. You have a two nations. You have the nation of uh, the, the the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judea in the south, and the kingdom of Israel in the north. Um, they uh, disallowed access to the kingdom of Judea in the south, so they couldn't go to the temple. They built their own temples, and they ended up building temples to uh, the gods of Zeus and to idolatry and all the kings of uh, the north had the opportunity to try to kind of repent and mend the fences but they were all idolaters and in the year uh, 5 about the year 550 before the common era it's about 150 years after uh, this two kingdoms you have the Assyrians um uh, the, the the Assyrians who overrun the northern kingdom of Israel, and the ten tribes are uh, displaced. They are they, you know they are they are they are removed. We, they're gone. We're told in the Talmud they're never coming back. And in their place we have the uh, the Shomron, right? The, the Samaritans are, are are put in their place. Right? Sancheiruv destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. He takes them and moves them out. They're gone. We don't know where they are. There's perhaps. Uh, some people say that there's some legends that they everyone claims that they know where they are. They're in Nepal. They're in Africa. They're in India. We don't know, but we're told on Talmud that they're not coming back. Right? They had reached the level of being steeped in idolatry for too long for them to have any rehabilitation. Sancheirev continues his march towards Jerusalem. He lays a siege on Jerusalem, and we actually have in the British Museum. We have hieroglyph. We have some sort of. Uh, I think it's a hier- it's, it's either hieroglyphics or pap- 
papyrus or some sort of, of, of engraved, engraved, I don't remember exactly what they have, but it's some sort of uh, the boasting of some pair of, of I'm about to capture Jerusalem. He does not capture Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judea is still close enough, still righteous enough to withstand this. God says, I'm not giving up on these people. Right? They still have the temple and they still have somewhat of a uh, of, of, of a righteous streak to them. They're spared. And they have, uh, and, and, and from, then, uh, from then on, when we talk about the Jewish people, we talk about these people, right? And we're called Jews. Why? Because from the kingdom of Judea, right? Yehudim, from Yehuda. Now, some um, of the ten northern tribes, some of them, some people seek refuge in, in, you know, amongst the greater Jewish people. That's why today, uh, Jewish people, or you know, from this kingdom of Judea, were comprised of a mix of all the twelve, uh, of all the twelve tribes, because some of them did come and join us. Oh, okay. So the ones in the north that got dispersed, some of them went down. To Correct. The south, they didn't Correct. The, the Correct. Population. Now, how long did we have? We didn't have much longer. But another couple hundred years, uh, 150 years later, we have the Babylonians destroying the first temple. And for us, this was the last of the degradation of the Jewish people. We had the peak. We had Solomon. We had these 40 years where we were a unified nation. We had a temple. right? It went south right after Solomon died. There were some poor decisions. And there weren't efforts, significant efforts made to uh, prevent the erosion of the northern kingdom. They're gone. The southern kingdom also had the final nail in their coffin with the temple being destroyed. And the first temple, that's the temple. That was the temple that we had all the vessels of the, the Beit HaMikdash. Everything that's described in the Torah, that was in the first temple. Second temple, while being still a temple that had many of the vessels of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the Beit HaMikdash, didn't quite have it all, didn't quite have the same flavor that existed in the first temple. Can I ask a question? Yes. Then, you know, we talk about the reason why the second temple was destroyed. You know, I mean, in other classes we've talked about it. What is the overall reason why the first temple was destroyed? Well, we're told it's destroyed because they, they were negligent in the mitzvahs, and especially the okay. three cardinal mitzvahs. Okay, okay. Which is they started yeah, worshiping idols, you said. Idolatry, they had idolatry issues. Adultery and, adultery and murder, yes. Okay, okay. So, so that's that. This we, you know, we kind of see how the Jewish people, you know, when they, when they're, when they're great, you know, when they're, when they're behaving, right, they can have it all. And during the times of Solomon, there was nothing like it. In fact, it was so good that during the times of Solomon, they didn't accept any converts. Right? In the times of David and Solomon, those eighty years, there were no converts there except for the Jewish people. Why? Because the Jewish people had it all. They had their cake and they ate it too. They had it all. They had riches. They had a peace. They had. Prosperity. They had everything, everything you could possibly want, and then therefore they didn't accept any converts. All the converts were we suspected them that they just wanted to, you know, jo- join the bad wagon. You know, they weren't necessarily sincere. But that quickly eroded. It quickly eroded, and the culmination of that is the destruction of the first temple. I think we'll stop over here because I don't want to go too far over. No, over. but I want to ask you how the the star became the symbol of us. Oh, I have no idea what the what the the star. I have no I have no idea. It came from David. Some say they come from David. David. I don't know. I, I I never researched that. And that's when they put on the 
when you go to the thing, it has a star engraved in it on the by the wall and all by the David entrance or the. the so. Uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know much about it, but I I think that we uh, you know I. Yeah, it's, I don't know how significant it is in macro-Jewish history. But I think we, we kind of get a picture of what happened, what were the stories, what were the major themes, and how we, you know, from, we have perspective, you know. We see that, that the same things, the patterns of, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat themselves. And, you know, the opportunities that we have and the, the impact that we, we, we will bring to the world, well, that's happening regardless. It's going to happen. It's going to happen either because of us or in spite of us. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, the lesson for us is, as individuals, but, you know, even more so as part of a community, is that we see, we see time and again, we see that the Jewish people, when they made poor decisions, when they deviated, deviated away from God, then all the other aspects of their lives head south as well. But when we are, you know, following what we're expected, what's expected of us, when we dot the I's and cross the T's, as we say, when we fulfill our mission, when we do what's right, we can have it all. So, Rabbi, skip ahead to today and what's going on in Israel. What column you put? Like I said, like I said, every great achievement that we ever had, it's always going to first falter. There's always going to be some missteps on the way, Right? We have that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have that with the first temple, second temple, and hopefully the third temple. We have that with Israel, Israel as well. You know, Israel started off. Did it start off exactly the way? This is this is the the, the rebuilding of Israel that's going to be that that's going to culminate in us all the Jewish people going back to Israel, all the people readopting Torah. Not not quite yet, but we're a lot closer than we were hundred years ago. We're a lot closer than we were fifty years ago, right? Israel's now is yeah Israel Israel start. Are they, are they making right decisions? I well, I'm saying this on a specific in in oh whoa I got called a historian. He's a scholar. That's really what he is. But I think from a you're asking from a micro perspective, should they bomb Aza? Is that you want to know? No, no, not just that. Let me put it in the right way. In the last say ten years. Following the right path, the people that the, are there—are the, they getting away from the religion? Are they? Let, let me say it this way: the founders of the religion, right? The first that came up with the idea was actually not quite the first that came up with the idea. The idea was came up, was was already before spawned before Herzl. But Herzl was an assimilated Jew whose kids converted to Christianity. He has no Jewish descendants. Right. right. When I heard that, that blew me away. Mm-hmm. He's gonna be the one who's gonna bring the Jewish people back to Israel? Really? And you fast forward to the, the Zionist movement, we're going to develop a nation like any other nation. We're not different than anyone else. Are you the, uh, the Jewish nation where Jewish prostitutes be arrested by Jewish policemen? That's what, that's what one of the, uh, uh, the original Zionists is. That's what we're looking for. We want to be no different than everyone else. Really? That's what it means? That was all yeah, it could be right? Uganda. Yeah. It could be Uganda. Yeah. Who, who well, cares? Thinking just, of things like that. Right, exactly. That was the beginning. So really, I found out I am not a Zionist after... No, well, yeah. but the point is, is that... But look at Israel today. Israel today is the most flourishing Jewish community on the planet. 
It's a today that has grown tenfold. It started off with 600,000 Jews, now there's 6 million Jews there. It started off being totally secular. Now, and now look at the 30, 40% of Israel is now, is, is now, is now observant or some really? degree. Oh, I love yeah. How do you define flourishing? Well, it's flourishing, which means that it, it means it's 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 growing, it's developing. There's people moving there. It's it's a Jewish place. Yeah. But not only that, it's the land. if everybody went and hunkered down and studied Torah? You know what? It's the land. No, it has to be. Mark Twain wrote about Israel in the late 1800s. He went there. It was like a desert. It was a desert. And now, I'm too busy studying Torah. Well, you can both they study in the army, but that's silly. Then why can't they be both? No, but uh, no, that's no one. That's a good question. No one ever, no one ever advocated that everyone should be studying Torah. In fact, right, the pioneer of this agreement with this, this, the, right, with Ben Gurion was the Chazanish, who made the agreement that the, those who who have who study Torah full time shouldn't be part of the army. That was the Chazanish. They made the agreement in 1952, mm-hmm. and. He himself said that if there's no one going to the army, then we have to go. Right? He was the argument was that we don't need an army. The argument was that if there are people that are studying Torah uh, and you have a fully functioning army, then those people should be should, should be obviated from the from the from the responsibility of taking on the spiritual and the physical toll of protecting that Israel. Makes sense. Huh? So it makes sense until the Haredim become ninety nine percent of the country. Okay, so that's where reality has to change, and you know what it's changing. Yeah. It is because is. they're so brilliant it because we're bringing people to start off with, and they but, do so many things, and now they're trying, they're getting them to do computers and doing all this stuff. Yeah, but I, I don't want to take the. I'm saying we can always argue about the fine points, but I think from the historical perspective, we see how Israel over the past hundred years, where it was just an idea, let's create a secular, totally just just Jewish, is it has evolved into being a dynamic. Uh, bastion of Jewish vibrancy. It's like, it's like you said the first time we showed up. It's the hard part of making a nation. You've got to have laws. You've got to have exactly. jobs. Exactly. You've got to fight off Did all these people around. Did you ever restart Yeah, and, but, and, and, and not lose your identity as being a distinct nation. Get the book Start Up Nation. Okay, so we'll stop here and I will so have to do a part back, two. you at least. Yeah. No, Maybe three. Maybe, we'll see. Might.